Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation to owners, custodians and caretakers of this land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. We'd also like to acknowledge that December 1 is World AIDS Day, a day to raise awareness about the issues surrounding HIV and AIDS, and to show support for people living with HIV, and to commemorate people who have died, and that today, December 29, is the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian People. A day to reflect on the fact that Palestinian people have yet to attain their absolute rights as defined by the 1947 General Assembly, and that they continue to live in lands occupied by Israel since 1967. You're listening to Queering the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest in the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA spectrum. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queering the Air and listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air. Please be aware that today's episode contains descriptions and discussions of violence against women and girls, physical and emotional abuse, sexual violence, economic abuse, isolation and queer phobia that may be distressing for some listeners. If this is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or contact your state-based service. Today's episode of Queer in the Air was produced and recorded remotely as we speak with guests Tina Dixon from Canberra in Nanawal country and Lavanya Kala living in London, UK. We speak about the issues relating to queer women from migrant, refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds experiencing gendered violence. Tina and Lavanya's extensive advocacy work with forcibly displaced people, migration, human rights, and gender equity issues, and how to support women and girls experiencing all forms of violence in the context of the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence towards women and girls, which begins on November 25 and culminates with Human Rights Day on December 10. Tina Dixon is a queer feminist academic policy professional and refugee who has worked in the areas of LGBTIQ, refugee and women's rights, both in Australia and overseas. She's a PhD candidate writing a thesis on the lived experiences of queer refugee women. She is a co-founder of the peer support and advocacy group Queer Sisterhood Project and is also co-founder and chair of Forcibly Displaced People Network. Lavinia Kala is an experienced policy and government relations professional with an extensive knowledge and expertise on social policy and politics, migration, human rights, and gender equity issues. She serves on the board of directors at Beryl Women Inc. on Ngunnawal Country, Australia's longest operating women's refuge, and is a director at Forcibly Displaced People Network. 
Now, here is our conversation with Tina and Lavinia, where we begin the discussion on the impacts of gendered violence towards women and girls in the context of the 16 Days of Activism. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Thanks for having us uh, today. My name is Tina Dixon. I am a chair of the Forcibly Displaced People Network. We are the LGBTQ plus refugee-led organization. Thanks as well for um, having us today. I'm Lavinia Kala, board director at FDPN. And um, yeah, I'm actually currently based in London. As board directors, please discuss the Forcibly Displaced People Network in detail and what work has occurred during COVID-19. The main purpose of the Forcibly Displaced People Network is to provide a space of community and belonging for LGBTIQ plus people who were forcibly displaced and now living in Australia. So this includes people who are people seeking asylum, refugees, but also those who uh, do not have equal opportunities to live freely and safely in their countries of origin, yet they're utilizing different migration pathways, such as through student visas, to live safely in Australia. During COVID, the demand really escalated because nobody in Australia who is on temporary visa is eligible for any income support. So we were doing a lot of direct relief and support um, to people, but also we more broadly work on advocacy issues, making sure that um, services are attentive to the needs of this particular cohort and understand why it is really essential for them to be a safe and inclusive place so people can go there and access their supports. So let's discuss the 16 days of activism. And as we know, this campaign is used as an organizing strategy by individuals and organizations to call for the prevention and elimination of violence against women and girls. And when we think of violence, that can be many things. It can be intimidation, it can be physical, economic abuse, isolation, emotional abuse, and using male privilege. So let's discuss that in broad terms in how it relates to both of your work and or research, activism, or your own lived experience. The 16 Days of Activism Against Sexual and Gender-Based Violence is really relevant to the work of FDPN. Most of the LGBTIQ plus people who we work with, they are survivors of some forms of violence. And it's exactly like you say, MV, sometimes it is very physical and events-based and persecution that is legislated, but sometimes it is also, um, I guess, those forms that remain really invisible because, you know, they're not spoken about things like society and familial pressures, in particular inflicted on women where, you know, in patriarchal societies, their sexuality is being seen as, you know, as only being legitimate when it is with men. And so within FDPN, we see a lot of women who are actually survivors of forced marriages, for example. Um, but I also think more broadly in the context of LGBTQ plus people, we have to be also looking at violence perpetrated against every community member. Of course, when we look at the drivers of violence, they're really gendered and they're occurring in those societies where patriarchies and male privilege are normalized. But in the context of LGBTIQ+, precisely because people, you know, defy those really rigid gender norms because they have different sexualities or gender identity, they also become subjected to their violence and quite often that violence is inflicted on them with an attempt to normalize them, right? And I put normalize in quotation marks because they want you to fit in and you, they want you to adhere to those gender norms. They want you to be, you know, heterosexual and stuff like that. And I think this is where a lot of people are experiencing really 
you know, um, heightened um, violence, you know, committed against them. Um, and then, you know, they come to Australia to be protected. So I think this is a really great time for us to raise awareness on the issue, um, on the extent how much violence has happened to these people. But also it's important then to look that violence does not stop simply because people cross the border. And in Australia, the violence continues sometimes in different forms. And sometimes it can be something, you know, as exclusion and denial that LGBTQ plus refugees exist in general. But also we do see a high prevalence of sexual harassment, for example, in particular when people are working in really precarious and casual employment. I think um, just to add to what Tina has said, I think also, you know, the 16 days of activism also is really that call to action around violence against women and girls. You know, for FDPN, it really is also about, you know, prioritising marginalised, disenfranchised groups and providing a voice, ensuring that lived experience really is at the forefront of the conversation and, you know, providing a voice for people who really don't have a voice in this debate. I think, you know, we, we look at violence against women and girls and, you know, we do talk about women and girls and, and, and violence, but we tend to sort of you know, forget about the intersectional issues that, you know, are associated with violence and all these other sort of complexities as well. And so, you know, organisations like ours really do sort of unpack that and look at that because we are involved in service provision. We do speak to individuals. We hear it straight from them, what these issues are, and we are able to, you know, raise these issues with other organisations, with decision makers and also, you know, with the media and the wider community and to make sure that they are addressed. Lavanya, there's a really interesting point about the intersectional issues that relate to violence in its many different ways that it comes to fruition. And you yourself have done extensive work in supporting women and girls, including Mababa's Promise, the National Community for UN Women and the Harmony Alliance, Migrant and Refugee Women for Change, and the 38th session of the Human Rights Council. So when we think of your last answer, can you discuss that in the context of the 16 days of activism and how that relates back to the advocacy work that you've done in the past? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, obviously the 16 days of activism really is around this call to action. A lot of these organisations, you know, that I've worked for in the past, you know, and I know that a lot of the organisations that FDPN engages with, which is, you know, some of these, you know, um, National Women's Alliances, um, organisations that, you know, Tina and I both are involved with or have been involved with, these organisations really do try to take that more holistic intersectional approach to looking at violence and looking at these issues because it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a linear trajectory when um, people experience violence. I guess, um, you know, for FDPN in particular, we know that, um, you know, issues like your migration experience really do impact upon you when you've experienced violence. Um, so, you know, if you have sought asylum in a country, you know, your your entire journey, your, you know, things like trauma um, and all those sorts of experience really do impact upon you. So, you know, some of the organisations that I've worked for um, in the past or, um, you know, been associated with, they really do look at that and they really do try and unpack those things 
as well um, in the context of the 16 days of activism. I think that, you know, it provides us with an opportunity to really look at those things um, in greater detail. Looking at sort of the 38th session of the Human Rights Council, um, the Human Rights Council really is looking at um, human rights issues um, and, you know, trying to um, address you know, specific um, human rights issues in relation to violence, obviously, and, and violence against women and girls. I think more and more, and particularly in more and more recent years, there has been a push to try and take a more intersectional approach to things. And I think Western nations and, um, you know, more progressive nations have been trying to take that more intersectional approach to looking at violence against women and girls, to looking at violence against against um, LGBTQI plus people as well. Um, however, obviously, um, you know, we look at things globally and there's been a lot of pushback globally, you know, in terms of um, looking at violence against women and girls issues, looking at um, the state of play when it comes to LGBTQI plus people as well. And I think that that has really, um, you know, impacted where we are at the moment. And that's extremely that just means that you know campaigns like the 16 days of activism just are much much more important for society we really need to continue to have these conversations we need to keep talking about these things and they need to keep running throughout the year you're listening to 3cr radio Uh, Tina, please discuss your work with FDPN, the Queer Sisterhood Project, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women in the context of the 16 Days of Activism. Like, what kind of uh, services do you offer? Queer Sisterhood Project was established back in 2018 as the group for queer refugee women in particular because we see a lot of degendering of, I guess, narratives on LGBTQ forced displacement and then we're not necessarily looking at those very unique but challenges that both cis and trans women um, who are queer and have been displaced experience. And we were the first organisation to uh, put in a shadow report as part of the reporting um, on the Convention of on the Elimination of all forms of discrimination against women um, in the UN back in 2018. And for us, the key thing was to highlight how um, discrimination and violence against queer refugee women was too entrenched in Australian society and, you know, how it was connected to some bigger policy asks like abolishing detention, for example, um, but also something very specific where precisely because of homophobia and transphobia, um, women could not still be safe um, when they were in Australia and, you know, technically were meant to be safe because they were on protection visas. So currently in 2020, Australia is undergoing um, sort of a halfway of its review of how they are implementing um, their recommendations. And unfortunately, there were no recommendations made by the committee um, very specific to LGBTQ plus refugee people. However, this year, we also participated to some consultation um, trying to update, you know, whether things have changed or not. And I think, you know, it's really crucial that we are actually attentive to several areas where violence is really prominent. One of them is uh, lack of housing options uh, because when we don't have income support, a lot of people end up being homeless and we know that when people are homeless and when they're LGBTQ+, they are much higher risks of sexual violence um, or they're forced to engage in survival sex, for example, trying to um, 
to make the ends you know meet and to have that so-called protection uh, once they are homeless um, but also it's important that we look at the context of sexual harassment at workplaces as well we have a lot of people who are employed in those very casualized precarious employments um, sometimes they are in male dominated areas such as construction for example and this is where quite often sexual harassment does happen and uh, people are really scared to actually complain about it regardless of the mechanisms available because they think that they're going to lose any that you know that employment that they have because they think that it will badly impact on their visa whether that's true or not but those challenges are really prominent and the way how sort of that visa precarity really um, impacts on you um, is there so I think we will continue working and monitoring the you know what happens and the rights and I think those um, questions of safety really escalated during COVID time as well because we were you know getting some data and reports um, when people were you know locked in in households that were potentially homophobic and they could not leave those places so you know the, the risks of violence um, and emotional abuse you know was really escalating so for us this is one of the key components of the work that you know we do on a daily basis um, because this is something Something that has to be looked at as Lavinia said you know all year round not just during the um, you know particular days of the year but at the same time there are a lot of other opportunities that exist within advocacy spaces both domestically and internationally that will also have to be engaging um, because they create those opportunities and momentum for us to actually change something and one of those for example is at the moment the United Nations High Commissioner is running a series of dialogues on LGBTQ forced displacement and that means that we're doing that work at 1am or 3am in the morning because all of those events are happening in the European time time but it's really essential that we do have a seat at that table because then we're able to influence what happens globally to the rights of LGBTQ plus people in forced displacement. Thanks for outlining that Tina that's really important work and really appreciate you fleshing that out a little bit more. Uh, my next question is for Lavinia for women from migrant and refugee backgrounds and cultural values and immigration status the issues can exacerbate because of the complexity of family and domestic violence. And usually women from migrant and refugee backgrounds are less likely um, than other groups of women to report family and or domestic violence. And as a result can face additional barriers in relation to safety for those women. And I suppose just in these last few answers, safety has been a real big issue, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. In your experience or in your work and advocacy, why does this happen? So um, in my experience, this is a common problem. This does happen. And um, women from migrant and refugee backgrounds are oftentimes less likely to seek help when facing violence due to a number of factors. And, you know, these are things like they might fear repercussions, fear authorities. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, women from migrant refugee backgrounds have come from, you know, places where um authority figures, security officials um, can be quite menacing or they've had really quite terrible experiences. They don't really want to approach authorities with these sorts of issues because of those poor experiences. So that can be quite a negative experience. Of course, there are immigration issues that they have to contend with potentially as well. That can be additional complexities. Language barriers are a huge factor as well and um, you know having access to um, interpreters is um, you know a real issue there is not always access to free interpreting services and 
ensuring that there is access to free interpreting services, you know, for all the range of services. I mean, it's, it is even just things like, you know, when you're going to, you know, housing services or, you know, when you're accessing family and domestic violence services, ensuring that they have free interpreting services the whole way through their service provision. Because, you know, I was a board director for a um, family and domestic violence service. And one of the things that they experienced was they did not have access to interpreters the whole way through service provision. So it was a constant battle trying to find, you know, interpreting services and trying to find the funding for interpreting services for women from migrant and refugee backgrounds. There's also issues like a lack of knowledge about where to access services or, you know, trying to find services which might you know, suit their needs or, you know, that they might feel safe going to. No access to their own money as well. When you're trying to escape a perpetrator who might have control of your money, that can be a huge issue. There's fears on safety for their children as well, which might mean that they may not want to leave. There's a range of different issues here at play, um, which is why oftentimes women from migrant refugee backgrounds may not be able to leave and this can really exacerbate family and domestic violence. I think incumbent on state and territory governments to work in partnership with the federal government as well to sort of address some of these issues. Women from migrant refugee backgrounds as well and particularly those on temporary visas really do require additional support and these are things like access to income support, access to you know adequate housing, addressing some of these immigration issues as well. So, you know, they're not finding themselves um, destitute if they do find themselves facing these, these sorts of circumstances. And I think right now that in Australia, there are serious gaps. It really does need to be addressed. And we do have frontline services in Australia who really are filling these gaps. And they're the ones who don't have adequate funding. Like, as Tina said, um, FDPN right now is currently, you know, supporting people, supporting individuals, um, but we are an unfunded service. It's not just us. There are many, many organisations across the country doing a lot of incredible, vital work. But, you know, frontline services across the country face similar challenges. I think it's also what's important to mention is that in the context of LGBTIQ plus people, quite often um, authorities were one of those perpetrators of violence back in their home countries, and they're really significantly then impacts on people's ability to trust them in Australia. So they do not want to go and report to the police because often police was the one to inflict violence on them. Um, and you know, and this is those challenges that we also have to be working with those authority figures that they actually competent and they're able to provide those supports, and then also in Australia, you know, we do have people who, for example, when they were forcibly married and they may have experienced um, intimate partner violence back home and that would form part of their claims coming to Australia. But then in here, for those LGBTQ plus people who have their families, they may be experiencing family violence already in Australia for a number of reasons, maybe because their family knows that they're LGBTQ or maybe unrelated. But I think those kind of issues become really complicated when we actually add sexuality, gender identity into play um, in here. And, and, you know, we do need to have those um, trainings and specialist services available to be able to actually um, understand and meet the complexity of these needs. We have discussed the global pandemic, um, COVID-19, a lot, which is no surprise because it's quite at the forefront at the moment. 
but what is less frequently discussed is the existing and increasing pandemic of violence against women. You know, as as people are more marginalised, they are more vulnerable uh, to that violence. There has been a recent grant from the Pride Foundation Australia for an online training module for services provided to LGBTIQA plus refugees and asylum seekers. What are the aims of this training? We are very um, fortunate to secure this um, grant. So currently FDPN is working on the building, the training module that is going to be available um, freely and publicly from um, late next year. And with the training module, we're going to be looking to target um, a broad group of um, settlement and asylum seeking services and LGBTQ plus services. And the idea is really to, I guess, bridge the gaps between the two because the settlement services really know well what um, supports are necessary for refugees and LGBTQ services really know well what supports are needed for LGBTQ plus people but when migration is there you know in the play this is where gaps happen this is where you know people um, really don't understand the complexities where people you know don't understand how essential for example it is to have a trauma-informed responses and then when you come to services you know how this safety is really essential for you Essentially, with the training module, we'll be helping, um, hoping to um, to put all of the information together so people can understand um, what the LGBTQ plus forced displacement is about, but also build their capacity into how they can improve their service provision. And so um, there will be things, you know, something um, obviously as high level as training is required, just something more nuanced and details. What do we actually mean when we say we want LGBTQ plus people to be supported and to be safe? Um, and so there will be sort of a mix of those really... Um, Um, detailed and practical steps and services can do because at the end of the day any of the services any of the social services supporting people is eventually maybe supporting somebody who's LGBTQ plus and from forced displacement and we need services to be better equipped to support those people. You've just listened to the first part of our conversation with Tina Dixon and Lavinia Carla, where we begin to discuss their work, activism and advocacy for queer refugee and asylum seeker women the migration experience and the accessibility of services and the barriers to them. The second part of our conversation is coming up after some announcements. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. For LGBTQ people seeking asylum, the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers, they are on bridging visas. And it is really difficult to find employment on a bridging visa. A lot of LGBTQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. And so in situations before when they were able to work and had any specific medical needs, now there was no jobs anymore. People seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. and so for many that men they cannot meet their health needs at all. Tricia, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au.
The Rainbow Door is a free, culturally safe, specialist helpline for all LGBTIQA Victorians. The helpline provides information, support and referral from experienced peer workers on issues including mental health, family violence, relationships, suicide prevention and sexual assault. For information, support and referral, call the Rainbow Door on 1-800-729-367. That's 1-800-729-367, 10am to 6pm every day. Switchboard is a 3CR supporter. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. If you just tuned in, you're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming with MV and Naveen. In the second part of today's show, we continue our conversation with Tina Dixon and Lavanya Kala, where we discuss public policy, migration status and preventing all forms of violence against women and girls, and in particular, queer women from migrant, refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. Lavinia, I'd just like to pose a question to you in relation to your policy and external relations experience, and especially uh, your experience in public policy. And when we look at policy that exists in government and state government and organisation, it's usually centred around a cis-heteropatriarchal framework. And so my question is, what does that mean for queer women, refugees and asylum seekers when we look at policy in relation to all forms of violence against women and girls? What this really means in relation to policy is that more often than not, queer women, refugees and asylum seekers often overlooked in public policy and in the public policy debate, you know, and this is exactly why, you know, it's important that organisations like FDPN exist through organisations like ours um, that, you know, we try to ensure that the lived experience of queer refugees and asylum seekers are considered by our decision makers and reflected in public policy. You know, I think that without organisations like ours, you know, some of the conversations that we're sort of having, you know, in the media and sort of at the grassroots level, we aren't able to sort of escalate those to our decision makers in that sort of more structured way. And I think that's really where, um, you know, public policy, it really is so powerful. Um, But 
sort of peak national organizations like ours and not-for-profits as well. They really do some really incredible work in public policy and in shaping public policy, influencing public policy, particularly um, around issues around women and girls, violence against women, um, for us in particular, FDP, and around queer refugee and asylum seeker issues as well. Um, I think, you know, we play a really important role, but obviously all of our work really is centred around that lived experience and that's exactly, you know, what our role is and and what we have to do in in this space. If you look at Australia right now and you look at um, the public policy debate, it really is lacking um, in terms of sort of more substantive policy um, around you know, queer women, refugees and, and asylum seekers and I think movement in these areas as well. I guess that that's where organisations like ours can, you know, continue to do some work and put some pressure on, on governments, um, try to collaborate with them, work with them to raise these issues. And, um, you know, I guess from my own part um, as a board director, it would be just to encourage individuals to come forward, raise their issues um, with organisations like ours, raise their issues with similar organisations. Use your peak organisations to raise your issues because that's what peak organisations are are there for. It's to help shape and influence public policy. And Lavanya, you spoke a lot about that, of the inclusion of the lived experience in the way these policies are shaped. Can you give more information about how that dictates how the policy is perhaps created or how it puts pressures on government? Like, what is the framework there? How does that happen? Ideally speaking, I think good policy, good public policy really is shaped and influenced by lived experience, by you know, what's going out there in the public and what the public need is. Of course, that's not always the case. And I think that's oftentimes what we see. It's, we aren't really seeing um, policy that is being driven by public need. And again, um, I think this is where sometimes organisations in the not-for-profit sector, we do these things very well. We go out, we consult with the groups that we represent you know, we we work out what the needs are and we do take them to our decision makers. We do take them to government. We do take them to state representatives and we say, hey, look, these are the issues. This is what we need done or this is what these groups are asking for. We need to do something about this. However, obviously, you know, priorities and what not, uh, you know, other priorities and whatnot, politics is sort of dictating a lot of public policy. And that's where I think things are sort of falling down. However, again, organisations like FDPN, you know, do have that critical role because we can continue to place that pressure on governments, um, continue to gather the lived experience, continue to work with individuals to identify what the needs are and take them to the decision makers. Um, I think that that is our critical role and um, that's what we're going to continue to do. That was the reason you know, one of the key reasons why FDPN was established was to promote issues around queer refugee and asylum seeker issues, was to, you know, do advocacy, was to influence the public policy debate, um, because there are so many key issues around, you know, LGBTQI asylum seeker and refugee issues. And really, 
the public policy debate in Australia really isn't addressing any of these um, issues at the moment. It is lacking, as you mentioned, that they really are cis-hetero at the moment. And so I think, yeah, as I, I can only reiterate that people need to continue to work with your peak bodies and um, keep coming to organisations like FDPN. You're listening to Radical Radio 3CR. The online article um, written, beautifully written by you, actually, Tina, um, Broken Promise of Safety, um, discusses migration status and sexual violence against women. Um, It states that trans women of colour are almost 20% more likely to experience multiple instances of sexual harassment. Um, Can you please uh, unpack this statement further? That statistics comes from the uh, most recent report on the experiences of trans women of colour. And um, as it has highlighted that um, in Australia, trans women of colour experience higher rates of violence and quite often um, not only within intimate relationships, but also from strangers. So there's quite a lot of experiences of just sexual harassment, you know, from strangers on the street, just for the fact that, you know, that they are who they are. Um, And I think this is something that we have to be really um, working on it because we know when I was writing the article, the question was, do queer women, queer refugee women experience, you know, more sexual harassment in Australia because they're queer refugee women? And I'm kind of um, challenging that because I don't think it's because they're queer or because they're refugees. It is because we are in a society that is very patriarchal, that is still very um, Anglo-centric, that, you know, is still very cisgender and whoever sort of, um, you know, in the eyes of, of this kind of normative society deviates from that, you know, um, then people think it's appropriate to exercise their power on them to either abuse them or to try and, you know, tell them how they should live. And I think this is really um, a terrible situation where we live in. Um, this is where it's really essential that the policies, the responses, that any work that is happening on violence against women is actually really intersectional, that, you know, we are expanding our understanding um, of who is a woman to obviously talk about cis women uh, and trans women, that we're also not looking at some kind of a normative category that, you know, we've got white heterosexual women only experiencing violence, but we're actually looking at those, you know, who are of Gala, who are from migrant refugee backgrounds, who have disabilities, because I don't think we do really well in those areas. And that one, and that's when we get that really terrible statistics out. And, you know, for us, it's not statistics, it's the lives. It's it's that knowledge that even if you got a visa to be in Australia, um, you still, you know, may experience, you know, those instances of violence and harassment on your daily basis. And, you know, that's why I call the article Broken Promise of Safety, because I just don't think that safety is 100% reality for every person you know who's got a visa to stay here i'd like to just switch the gears as we're coming to the 16 days of activism i'd like to reflect upon the the global theme for this year which is orange the world fund respond prevent collect and at times these UN days and themes can appear tokenistic, and which is why it's so important that we speak to women and gender diverse activists during this time to speak about these issues really from a grassroots and activist perspective. So even though it is tokenistic, these conversations are important. So what are your thoughts on this year's theme? 
Um, I think it is a good time um, for for the global community, but also domestically to actually reflect and, you know, look at the commitments that we're making and look at the areas that still needs to happen. And I think with this year theme in particularly, um, the question of funding is really crucial because we need to be funding um, those community driven and community led organizations because we as those people who have the lived experience um, of both the LGBTIQ forced displacement, but also violence, um, you know, we come with a solution what works in our communities and what needs to be changed. And I think we need to be supported to then, you know, go on and, and respond and prevent those challenges. I also wanted to reflect on the importance of collecting the data because we are um, not really good with this in Australia. And I think, you know, it is really crucial that within the, I guess, the narratives on violence against women, we're actually going beyond really um, gender binaries. And, you know, we look also people who are non-binary that we are collecting data on trans people experiencing um, violence. You know, I think one of the other areas, which is a really huge gap, is any data on intersex people as well um, in the context of displacement in particular. So I think it is a good um, time for everyone to to look where their responsibilities lies, uh, where, you know, where we talk about gender equality, we want to achieve it until we know we combat racism and transphobia. And I think this is also, I guess, a bit of a reminder for those people working in these spaces to reach out and to, and to be inclusive um, of diverse experiences in all our work. Just to add to Tina's points, I agree around the um, data collection, the, you know, particularly the disaggregated data collection. We are incredibly poor with collecting data in Australia. I think it's it's very, very linear um, data collection and um, it really doesn't tell us what, what we need to know. And I think then that sort of then, you know, flows on to public policy and our service provision and that's when we have gaps and um, and this is where, you know, you know, structures tend to fall down and we really aren't addressing the need, the very, very critical need. I think in terms of the, um, the theme for this year's uh, 16 Days of Activism, yes, it can sometimes seem a bit tokenistic, but I think, you know, we're, we're living in a bit of a different time with the pandemic. The way that we're doing things has shifted a little bit. Obviously, we're, we're in a very virtual world um, at the moment, everyone is, you know, sort of shifted into this space and everyone's really thinking about the pandemic all the time. And so I think we're, you know, in some ways forgetting about some real world issues and some real world issues are things like violence against women and girls, which are still happening. These, these things have not gone away. They are still occurring day to day. And I think that something like the 16 days of activism, I think is really important that we still keep thinking about, you know, these critical issues that we keep highlighting them, you know, we continue to, to talk about these issues, we continue to um, have these conversations, not just within, um, I think, our own echo chambers, so, you know, particularly in the sectors who, you know, already do this work. Um, and, and I think that a lot of the times, um, you know, we do tend to have these conversations with like-minded people, but I think, you know, these big global UN campaigns are really good for, you know, having these conversations with wider groups, you know, so with corporate organisations and with uh, those in the public sector and, and, you know, to start 
thinking about how we can address change in those ways. So, you know, we've been really focused on the pandemic in 2020, but I think the theme is talking about funding, responding, preventing, collecting, which I think is actually really important because we've been really focused on those types of issues with the pandemic. So the irony of that is actually we need to start thinking about these sorts of things in relation to violence. Um, and yes, we have these conversations all the time um, and every year, but actually we really do need to take a good practical look at, at this because we're sitting in 2020 and, you know, the rates of violence against women in Australia are at critical levels and we still, you know, have not got a handle on it. And, you know, for FDPN, we're looking at queer refugee women and there really is not um, an adequate response to it from, you know, from our decision makers. And so we really do want to make sure that we're part of this conversation that, you know, when we're talking about violence against women and girls, that, you know, queer refugee women and asylum seekers are a part of that conversation as well. And FDPN has done some amazing work in relation to your fundraising campaign as well. That has pretty much, pretty much started since the pandemic. Is that right, Tina? Yes, we had a fundraising campaign back in April. We were able to raise about $9,000, which um, supported about 25 LGBTQ plus people seeking asylum located in various states across Australia. We were able to pay for people's medication, pay their rent, make sure they had food on their table. We're not doing that at the moment, but that is not to say that the need isn't there. I think with uh, a lot of relaxation of um, lockdowns and quarantines, people were able to um, to come back to employment. But I think the main problem there is that people are still um, in, you know, within the precarious migration processes, which takes years on end. Being on the bridging visa, they're not able to find secure you know, and permanent jobs. And I think this um, more than ever highlights how we really need to achieve a lot of structural changes um, to make sure that people are not discriminated, people get access to income support, people get access um, to stable jobs and their immigration situations are resolved fairly and in a really quick manner. And I think this is why at the moment we are trying to fundraise for the FDPN um, to have a dedicated staff member so we can actually do this, you know, work at a more strategic level and, you know, having a staff member, we could be doing so much more than we're already doing. So we really appreciate people becoming our monthly donors and support our work so we can make sure that you know every LGBTQ person in here can finally find their home in Australia. I was gonna ask how, how else do we can we support the organization like are there other ways um, I mean you know donating is is a very important way what else can we do? FDPN runs um, events um, and we took it as a policy that our events are paid um, because we're sharing a lot of really unique experiences and information as LGBTQ plus refugees and forcibly displaced people. Um, and I think it is a really good practice to support those community organizations so people can attend those ones. Um, we also have a Canberra statement on the access to safety and justice for LGBTQ plus forcibly displaced people and really it is a global solidarity tool that calls for people to affirm the rights of LGBTQ plus people in forced displacement and commit to some actions. And sometimes action can be really little as, you know, uh, making sure that you're supporting someone in your community, taking them out for coffee, helping them with resume 
and sometimes it can be something as big as making sure you know that we um, ensure the fair legal processes or that people actually have access to you know to culturally competent and inclusive service provision it really differs but who who has what capacity to do things and if you're a service or you're an individual but we are calling on people to sign up to these statements to publicly affirm the support because we need to increase the visibility we also really appreciate people engaging and sharing our content online. Uh, we produce a lot of content. We're really unique. And so we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the more you can spread the world, what about us? The more people can know, um, the more people can access support as well. That's great. Thank you for all that information. Um, looking forward in broad terms, um, can you please discuss prevention and awareness? Like how, how do we stop all types of violence against women and girls? Uh, and how do we affect change? I think it is important that a lot of prevention response is co-designed with the communities. Um, we're already spoken about appropriate data collection. We're already spoken about levels of funding um, and resourcing. But I also think we need to be doing a lot of uh, public awareness raising on the issue as well. And in particular for LGBTQ plus communities, Quite often we do come from the experiences where we didn't have good role models about relationships and sometimes the relationships do reinforce those harmful, you know, gender binaries and gender roles within the family. And this is where, you know, the intimate partner violence um, can occur. But we also need to be working with broader communities because a lot of violence that happens in Australia uh, within the LGBTIQ plus forcibly displaced communities is often inflicted by sort of a broader ethnic refugee communities. Um, and I think we have to be working across the board of the society, you know, with diverse communities um, on that inclusion and the human rights um, and, you know, what constitutes violence and how we can actually, I guess, all, you know, enjoy, um, enjoy the life um, in safety. Can I just um, add something to what Tina said? I think, again, this comes down to, again, that we need to think more broadly than speaking to our own echo chamber, which is, I think, something that oftentimes we'll have these conversations and we tend to speak to like-minded individuals. But part of what we've been trying to do and that a lot of organisations have started thinking a bit more about is, you know, working in partnership with other organisations who um might have similar ideals or goals so again you know we might try and work in partnership with a refugee organization um, who may not be you know lgbtqi focused but work with them to try and co-design something um, an event or something like that it might be an information sharing opportunity or it might be just an opportunity to try and bring um, individuals together but it really does provide that opportunity then to get people together to share experiences and break down some barriers and I think you know as Tina said that you know oftentimes you can have exclusionary views within communities and it's purely because we're not looking at things intersectionally. Thank you Lavinia I really appreciate that thank you for unpacking that for us. I suppose just the last question, this is directed for you, Tina, just some, an update and promotion on the Canberra Statement workshop that is happening on Thursday, the 26th of November, and that in itself is an interactive workshop on how we can practice solidarity with LGBTIQA plus forcibly displaced people. It's been a year since the Canberra Statement has been developed and at the moment we have about 400 signatories to this statement, out of which about 85 
uh, different organizations from 10 countries around the world. And I think it is fantastic that so many people really wanted to affirm the rights um, of LGBTQ plus forced displacement. Um, and a lot of people, you know, sign up to this and have been promoting. But I think what's really important that we also do practice that solidarity. And I know that for different um, settings, um, the challenges can be can be different into how we're doing it. Um, and so the workshop on the 26th is that space to actually share the learnings in terms of how diverse sectors are practicing solidarity with LGBTQ plus forcibly displaced people, you know, some actions may be really small, as for example, when you're inviting a, um, you know, LGBTQ plus refugee to speak on your panel, you pay for their participation. And some can be really big. How do you, um, you know, institutionalize the policies within your organization that will ensure that inclusion? And we think that every action is really important. And with the workshop, we're creating that space for people to really reflect on what they're doing and what kind of support they also need to, um, to do that work on a very systemic level um, and more effective. So the workshop is specifically for signatories um, and people, you know, can book the, um, the tickets online. I think it is really important that we did discuss the LGBTQ plus experience within the context of sexual and gender-based violence. Um, and I really hope that the discussions will um, create more positive changes going forward. We'd like to thank Tina Dixon and Lavinia Kala of Forcibly Displaced People Network for speaking with Queering the Air today about issues relating to queer women from migrant, refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds experiencing gendered violence, their extensive advocacy work with forcibly displaced people, migration, human rights and gender equity issues. We also spoke about how to support women and girls experiencing all forms of violence in the context of the 16 days of activism. And to find out more about their work, you may find the following links useful. Forcibly Displaced People Network, the first organisation in Australia to dedicate its work to the issues of LGBTIQA plus forced displacement and driven by the lived experience of it. Find them at fdpn.org.au. Queer Sisterhood Project, a refugee-led and peer-run support and advocacy group aimed to provide a space of community and belonging to queer refugee women. Find them at facebook.com forward slash queer sisterhood. Tina's online article, Broken Promises of Safety, that discusses migration status and sexual violence against women can be found at fdpn.org.au forward slash 2020 forward slash 07 forward slash 04 forward slash broken hyphen promise hyphen of hyphen safety. To become a signatory to the Canberra Statement, a document that outlines the access to safety and justice for LGBTIQA plus asylum seekers and refugees, go to tinadixon.com.au forward slash Canberra hyphen statement and donate to FDPN's fundraising campaign to assist forcibly displaced people via chuff.org forward slash project forward slash support hyphen LGBTIQ hyphen refugees. Links to these resources will be placed on Queer in the Air's webpage show notes later today and by the podcast version of today's show. If the content in today's show was a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au or alternatively contact your state-based service. If you have questions, comments or complaints about today's program, contact us via queeringtheair at gmail.com and listen to our collection of podcasts and to today's program on demand for up to 
a week after the initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash querying the air. Up next is Arabic music program, Salam Radio Show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.